Welcome back. You're watching Stockwatch with me, Julieta Televi, and joining me to take your questions this evening are Nick Crail from FNB Wealth and Investments and Shane Watkins from All Weather Capital. If you'd like to send questions to us, please SMS 41392, email stockwatch at bdtv.co.za or tweet us at businessdaytv using the hashtag Stockwatch. And Nick, Shane, good evening to you both. Nice to see you there. Um, Nick, if how is it? Um, and Shane, let me start with you. Uh, the markets uh, were a little bit peaky today. Um, but there was a recovery in the Chinese stock market, uh, which I think um, got everyone a, a bit nervous yesterday as a result of all the protests um, and the demonstrations that took place uh, around various Chinese cities over the weekend. Um, and the expectations somehow seem to, seeming to be that, yes, they are going to open up the economy. Um, and then I saw an FT article this afternoon where Beijing essentially says, no, they're not deviating from their zero COVID approach. So I wonder if that rally in the market was premature, especially if you consider what's happening to US markets at the moment, which is not very much. In other words, they, I think, are taking a more circumspect uh, view. So, you know, look, Chinese equities have come off, you know, very significantly this year, kind of 30 to 60% down. Um, so, and, and this has been characterized also by a lot of volatility. So you do have days where things are down or up 5 or 10%. They were up, uh, you know, overnight. Uh, in anticipation, as you said, of a relaxation of the zero COVID policy. Um, Gillette, the problem is that uh, Xi Jinping has aligned himself so directly and personally with the zero COVID policy that any step back from the policy uh, would be kind of an embarrassment to him. So, you know, it's, it's hard to see him stepping back from that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, some conspiracy theorists out there um, believe that, you know, to some degree he allowed these protests uh, simply so that his intelligence uh, apparatus could identify who the real troublemakers were on photographically on, on video in the Chinese environment so that in a subsequent crackdown he knows who to go after. Mm. Um, of course, I don't know if that's true, but I, but I do think it's fair to say that, you know, we're going into winter in China. Um, today was one of the highest COVID cases that they've announced currently. Uh, their vaccines have not been effective yeah. um, or less effective certainly than Western vaccines. And less than 20% of the aged population is vaccinated versus in Western countries, over 80% is vaccinated. So I guess, you know, um, short story, um, it's hard to see them relaxing the zero COVID policy now. Yeah. I mean, uh, Nick Bloomberg came out with some scathing editorials this morning about Xi Jinping and how he's effectively snookered himself. Um, and just talking how, you know, this authoritarianism is not going to end well, but who knows how, when, you know, that might play out. I mean, for you, a lot of Chinese shares sort of uninvestable. Uh, that was the worry, uh, certainly a few months ago. And then there was some expectation that, no, it's not, uh, you know, there's going to be a bit of a relaxation, the crackdown on tech companies in particular. Uh, you know, they've taken their, their, their sort of iron grip off that a little bit. But given what you've seen in the last couple of days, how, what's your sentiment towards Chinese equities? Yes, I don't mind Chinese equities, to be honest. I think you've got to have a fairly high uh, appetite for risk. Um, to get into that at the moment. And I, I certainly think that, you know, just from a geopolitical kind of, um, you know, standpoint, uh, the appetite for global investors to invest in China, I think that, especially in the Western world, I think they look at it as pretty close to uninvestable. Mm -hmm. And that really sort of talks through to Shane's points around the sort of volatility you see in the stocks. It is uh, very much underappreciated and I think underowned. Um, you know, uh, currently. Um, and in those sort of scenarios, um, 
I think positioning being as bearish as it is means that any sort of vague rumors, as you sort of alluded to, you know, surrounding perhaps a you know relaxation in restrictions around COVID, etc., are going to get the market a little bit excited because it has taken such a such a sort of hard beating. Um, you know, I think that China is a significant uh, country. I think it's got a significant population. I think it is still on a growth trajectory just not the growth that they've gotten used to perhaps over the last 20 years yeah. so there's a lot of opportunity but they're certainly in the eye of the storm at the moment um, add to that then the geopolitical risks and i think uh, you have a lot of investors saying no 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 I'll, I'll sit on the sit on the sidelines until i get a bit more certainty and unfortunately that's almost characterized where we sit in the world where everyone's a little bit negative a little bit bearish um and yet no one really has certainty about the sort of um, I suppose, potentially the depth of risk, the, the recession that we might be entering into, at least in, let's say, the developed um, economies, um, and whether inflation is going to come down at what pace, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a lot of uncertainty at the moment with a lot of um, pessimism. Mm-hmm. And it's making, you know, shorter term investment decisions quite tough uh, to navigate in this sort of environment. Yeah. Okay, well, then let's hang on. Judith, some- maybe- yes. Oh, sorry, Shane. Let me just add, sure, I just wanted to add to what Nick was saying. You know, so the zero COVID policy is very much looking at the domestic dimension of how things are playing out in China. But there's also the global dimension, which really relates to their relationship with the United States. Now, the one country that has benefited over the last two or three decades of globalization more than anyone has been China. And I think the US and China are now increasingly realizing that they are serious strategic global competitors and it's to some degree there's a bit of a zero-sum game playing out Mm. and there's some regulation going through in the united states over the next couple of months that will determine to some degree how the relationship plays out Uh, the one is uh, what they call the holding foreign companies accountable act which is essentially american companies wanting chinese companies to comply with u.s GAAP. Yeah. Um, and, and, and the American regulators having access to the audit packs of Chinese companies, which the Chinese have resisted. Um, and then the other one is the, the Taiwan Policy Act, uh, which is essentially the Americans putting into law the extent to which they will protect Taiwan in some way. And so the, those are two additional kind of wrinkles in the future for China. <laughs> Um, in particular, you know, if they are not successful in getting through um, uh, and complying with U.S. GARP, there's a risk that Chinese companies that are listed in the United States will be delisted. And, of course, if the Americans have a kind of draconian uh, Taiwan Policy Act, you know, implemented, and that seems more likely now that the Republicans uh, have gained greater power in the recent midterms, then the Chinese could respond with further kind of um, measures of their own. So... You know, in the in this kind of geopolitical conflict, they're not really, it's not really a, a, a good environment for equities generally. Yeah, I think wrinkle is a sort of a nice euphemistic way of putting it. <laughs> what might transpire in the next few months? Okay, so you have, uh, but you still sound as if you have slightly different views. Nick, you sound like you might be keen to take a bit of risk on certain companies. Shane, it sounds like you're kind of staying away entirely. I don't know if that's the correct assessment that I've got here from the both of you. But I shall move on, okay? Uh, Because um, it's hard to talk about unknowable things. So let's talk about things that we do know. Um, And there are two questions this evening about Mr. Price. You've had uh, results out from Mr. Price last week. Uh, You had results out from Pepco. You've had uh, Fashini. 
Um, and the question, the questions are, is there any hope for Mr. Price? It's now approaching its 52-week low. And the other one is, well, yeah, uh, it's down to its lows of the year. Is the stock market, is the stock, sorry, just cheap? Or should I be on the sidelines? Nick, um, the market's um, all of a sudden taking a, a lot more of a jaundiced approach, but I suppose the results weren't great. Uh, I mean, let's be honest. No, so, um, you know, it's certainly a company that is facing uh, some challenges at the moment. Um, but I think, you know, to the um, sort of uh, <coughs> viewer's question, um, is it cheap or do you stay on the sidelines? And my view is it's cheap. Um, again, it comes, I suppose, down to your time frame for when you're going to make that return. Um, and certainly with the world it is at the moment, you know, negatively looking at perhaps economic slowdowns, harsh realities, high inflation, you know, quite a bearish kind of outlook in terms of, let's say, the next 12 to 18 months. Um, you know, not any sort of apparel retailer is going to do particularly well in that environment. And I think that's largely been priced into the sector as a whole. Okay. Um, and so if you've got a six-month opportunity, uh, perhaps you do want to stay on the sort of the sidelines. If you've got a longer investment time frame, I think, you know, the, the, the strategic initiatives that Mr. Price is moving toward their balance sheet strength, et cetera, is going to keep them afloat during these sort of uh, more, let's say, difficult times. And, you know, the sun will come out. And when it does, I think they're going to be ideally positioned. And I think that the, the shares will reprice and reprice quite aggressively. So as a long-term investor, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a good entry point. Yeah. I mean, Mr. Uh, Mark Blair was saying uh, to my colleague Adele Shevel, uh, that they're still very optimistic. I suppose, you know, you have to say that as the CEO. But it was also the point he was making, because um, we were asking about the shift, you know, th there was this rush into the, the retailers that have um, attacked the so-called value segment, and there was this expectation that they were going to do the best. But unfortunately, their customers are being particularly hard hit by the ravages of inflation, so high food, high fuel costs. That's starting to eat into their disposable income, whereas if your upper income, it's not quite so bad. And you're saying, well, we can move into the upper segments, uh, whereas, you know, it's, it's not a, it's not a one-way street. Um, but Shane, I don't know if you have a similar view to, to Nick or if, you, if you're more bearish altogether um, on, on the Mr. Prices or, or Pepco's or the value retailers of the JSE. So, Nicolette, um, you know, I think if you look at this through a longer-term lens, sort of a secular lens, and then a sort of a more seasonal short-term lens, the longer-term lens of these apparel retailers is that for 25 years, they've been feeding off Edgars for market share, okay? Um, if you go back to 1995, Edgars had 38.5% of the South African apparel market. And that has dwindled down to, like, let's call it high single digits. And so it's been easy to grow while you've been attacking a bleeding massive competitor. And, and to some degree, that game has played out. So I'm talking, that's the longer-term perspective of the apparel retailers. The, their ability to gain market share without killing each other, merely going after Edgar's, has been a 20-year story that's been very beneficial. So that's over, more or less. Um, the shorter-term story for the retailers, as Nick said, um, you know, I think we know the, the, the economy is in a tougher space. And, you know, the, the, the kind of most simple way to understand an apparel retailer's results is to look at what the like-for-like like sales are. Don't look at the actual numbers. Just look at what the actual like-for-likes are. Assume, that's assuming, say, the stores didn't grow. Look what this turnover was. And to a large degree, the like-for-likes have slowed when some cases gone negative. Hmm. 
and that would be at a revenue line. But if you take inflation into account, volumes are well down. Yeah. So actual apparel volumes are down 5 to 10%, the number of garments they're selling. So, you know, but costs, on the other hand, like-for-like like costs are going up. So you have these, your revenue moving on a like-for-like like basis downwards and your costs moving on a like-for-like like basis upwards. So that's not really a good cocktail for, for, for earnings. And some of these shares are still quite expensive. So mm. I think, you know, we are, we want to be choosy in that sector because I don't think all companies are going to do equally well. Okay. Nick, just your thoughts on credit versus cash retailers into the next financial year. Um, I mean, there seem to be very differing schools of thought that you would rather buy the credit retailers that maybe target the upper income customer rather than the pep calls of Mr. Prices. But on the other hand, you have these interest rate hikes, which we've had 325 basis points this year alone. And it doesn't seem like it's going to stop the hawks of the inflation at the Reserve Bank are well in charge. Um, I mean, are you quite nervous about what that will do to credit retailers specifically? Uh, yes, I am fairly nervous, um, quite, quite, quite simply. I mean, I would certainly prefer, I think, in these sort of times when you're, you're looking at battening down the hatches um, and if you're going to go into a you know, fairly cyclical space, which fashion sort of apparel is or apparel retailers are, um, then you would prefer the ones with the, the least sort of cyclicality. And I think um, credit often, you know, especially in a bearish type of environment, and let's say that plays out, then it is the credit retailers that, you know, potentially could be hit fairly hard. Mm. Um, again, it's all about timing your entry and exit points to these sorts of things, because as they get hard, they'll make, you know, significant provisions, and ultimately it'll probably uh, not be as bad as that they will, you know, provide for. Uh, and inevitably, um, you know, there will be provision releases later on. Uh, as we have seen, you know, through COVID, et cetera, et cetera. But um, certainly at this time in the cycle, I would, I would prefer cash. Hmm. Uh, uh, Shane, your view? So, look, you know, the credit retailers also benefit from rising rates because as interest rates rise, as the Reserve Bank announces a rate hike, the credit retailers immediately reprice the credit that they have sold into their own customer base. So their book becomes more valuable. Hmm. Um, the, the offsetting factor is that there can be um, uh, higher bad debts, but generally the benefit of the higher interest earn tends to overshadow the higher bad debts. And I think the credit retailers have got better at managing that cyclicality with much better systems over time. Okay. So I would differ a little bit with Nick. I think, you know, if you look at the results from Lewis, they were extremely good. They credit furniture. Um, I thought the TFG results were okay. Um, the truest results are actually pretty good. Mm -hmm. And all of these are credit retailers with big credit books. And provided interest rates don't go too high, there's actually a benefit to them because they're basically like banks. They're banks that only lend to people to buy clothes. Yeah. 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 Well, two different points of view, extremely well argued. So I'd be sitting here, and I'd, I'd, I think I wouldn't buy any retailers whatsoever because I don't know what to do at this point. Um, what about Carp Agri? Let's go slightly left field in the retail sector. And the question is what's the panel, the view of the panel on Carp Agri as a medium term buy in a portfolio, or is Omnia a better buy at the moment? Nick, is Carp Agri one that you look at? They've been sort of incrementally doing their thing, seem to be doing quite well. Yes, I think that it's a. It's a well-managed business. I think it's it's pretty good. It's not really in a sector that I enjoy too much um, as a whole. So, you know, for my side, I, I would prefer Omnia, who's obviously had a, you know a very difficult, let's say, last eight years. Uh, ultimately, sort of sort of recovering and getting kind of better. 
Um, I think they've got, uh, you know, a couple of different, uh, you know, arrows in their quiver that they can sort of shoot out and look at in the market. They're going to be a little bit less cyclical than I expect Algri to be. Um, so, yeah, from, from my side, it would be preferring Omnia at this point. Yeah, and also I suppose Omnia has kind of proven themselves under management of the last three years that they, you know, they didn't stuff it up with the rights issue. They actually did what they set out to do, which is quite commendable. Um, Shane, do you look at Carp Agri at all? I mean, I know they, my, my colleague Mark Hassenfuss wrote about you've got the, the sort of the Agrimark um, aspect of the business, which has quite nice uh, uh, margins. I think they're above 6%, but then you've got the, the fuel business, which has very skinny margins. And I wonder if that's the problem for, for a lot of investors. So, you know, the history of Carp Agri, obviously, it was a PSG group company. Uh, PSG unbundled it. And um, it, it was very much a, a historically a Western Cape kind of cooperative um, with stores that sold uh, produce to farmers or product, you know, uh, farming equipment, not heavy equipment like tractors or, or harvesters, but light equipment. Yeah. And um, they then found that they had all of these sites where they were selling diesel and those sites were essentially licensed as filling stations. And they then suddenly realized that they could roll out filling stations, you know, um, all over their premises um, because they were already licensed for it. So there are two components to the business, as you say, it's a retail component and a fuel component. Um, you know, like, like any business, they will do well when their clients are doing well. And yeah. right now, uh, the farmers in the Western Cape are doing reasonably well. We've had quite good rains. Um, and so I think it's actually a very good business. I mean, you know, it trades on sort of a high single-digit uh, PE, um, sort of uh, eight or nine times forward, um, maybe even slightly less than that. And I think it's, I think it's a, a pretty good little business. The returns have been quite low, mm. the returns on assets and returns on equity, but management have been kind of working to get those up. And as your ROE goes up, you should expect the, the PE ratio to go up as well. Okay. So... Yeah, I think it's a pretty good business. It differs a little bit from Omnia, which is basically a fertilizer business. Um, and, you know, um, fertilizer <coughs> companies, have, they initially did quite well because, I don't know, I think like at least a third of the world's potash came from Ukraine. And obviously that stopped coming, you know, because of the war. Uh, so fertilizer prices went, went up. Um, uh, more recently, the fertilizer companies have done less well. Um, but I would agree with Nick. I mean, I think Omnia is a, a, it's a very well-managed company now. I mean, five years ago, I would say there was a risk of bankruptcy. But yeah. I would say yeah. and now I think it's actually under new management. The guys have done a very good job. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, some things to chew over there. Then a question on Glencore. What's the panel's view? Could there be another major stock market crash next year? Uh, as suggested by Michael Burry. Michael Burry. Um, Nick? Well, I suppose there's always the odds of the stock market crash. Uh, would it take Glencore with it? <laughs> um, so I suppose if we if we go back to 2016, the, the sort of the lows of the, the commodity markets, uh, Glencore certainly faced some liquidity challenges in terms of its balance sheet at that sort of point. And so in a turndown uh, and a significant sort of turndown for, for, for commodity prices, suddenly they did find themselves between a rock and a hard place. I think uh, for all commodity companies, really, um, at the moment, uh, times are very different at the moment. So there's a lot of balance sheet strength. It doesn't mean that the, the share prices can't take a bit of a beating as they'll be linked through to commodity prices in general. Um, but I think they will remain solvent. 
um, or the chances of that um, are, are very high at this sort of point. Uh, Glencore is obviously currently making a lot of free cash flow, going to be paying it out to investors as well, um, is fairly attractively priced, um, obviously continues you know, being in the press for the wrong reasons with regards to settling corruption claims, et cetera, et cetera. So you've got to have appetite for, for an asset like that if one's having a look at, an, uh, at Glencore. Um, but the commodity mix is, is, is certainly quite, um, quite good. Uh, a company I like in terms of the commodity mix, and the pricing is not too aggressive at the moment. So it's a company I would keep an eye on. Yeah. I mean, it's actually had a phenomenal year compared to some of its peers. Michael Burry, I thought that name was familiar. Um, he was uh, Scion Capital, wasn't it? Um, he was sort of made famous by the big short, Michael Lewis's book, uh, where he bet against the subprime market and was ridiculed um, and did very well out of it. Um, Shane, do you think... Do you think he's he's uh, on the money? I mean, and, and and well, firstly, and then your thoughts on Glencore? It's had a very good run this year. Well, well maybe maybe just to, to follow on what Nick said about Glencore. I mean, you know, so the answer to any commodity company is what's happening in China, right? Seventy um, percent of all the seaborne iron ore goes to China. Fifty percent of the world's copper goes to China, and about a third of everything else. So, if you want to know, if you if you have a, a, a uh, a definite view on China, then you can have a definite view on commodity companies. So, you know, having said that, I mean, the reason people want the zero COVID policy to to come to an end is they want the Chinese economy to open up, they want the Chinese economy to grow, and they want the Chinese economy to, you know, restart or accelerate the buying of iron ore, coal, steel, copper, PGMs, and whatever. So. You know, if you see those signs in China, then that's going to be good news for the diversified miners. On Glencore specifically, I mean, the business, um, they've, they've both kept their coal assets, which have obviously done extremely well. I mean, I think they've signed contracts north of $350 a ton, yeah. which is unbelievable. Um, and at the same time, they've started to invest into battery group metals. So they're using the cash flow from their kind of old economy businesses to buy into new economy businesses. And I think they are uh, quite an entrepreneurial, inventive management team in relation to other mining companies. And as you said, the share has done very well. I think it's up 40, 50% this year. And I guess it would be a good holding in a long-term portfolio. Mm, okay. Yes. Uh, right. Well, I'm going to move on. There was a question on Tungela, but unfortunately, uh, I'd rather get to your stock picks. Uh, um, so apologies to the viewer. Um, Nick, what, what uh, interests you at this point? So I suppose with the round coming back as it has somewhat, um, I'm going to look uh, for investments offshore. Um, again, I suppose my time frame is a little bit more on the longer term side opposed to a short term sort of trade. The company I'm going to go for is Amazon. So it is in the selling stuff to consumers area. Um, as you might have gathered, I suppose I'm not the, the greatest bear in the world that the stock market is ending and the world is coming to an end in the next sort of 12 months. Um, so in that oh, sort of environment, I think, I, think it's a, I think it's a stock that's going to do well. I think under you know, new management effectively, um, you're going to have a look at them trying to really focus on actually making returns in that retail sort of business. And as soon as they make, make money out of that retail side of the business, I think the shares are going to do incredibly well. So I think it's just a matter of time. Um, I think some of the pain is already behind us. In fact, the vast majority of the pain, 
um, as investors and ultimately I'm, I'm fairly bullish on it sort of medium term prospects. Yeah, and certainly maybe the pain of the of what's happened to their share prices has maybe introduced some rectitude in terms of what they should be doing in their business and focusing on margins and not just spending wildly. Um, Shane, very quickly from you, what what's, uh, would you be picking? So, um, you know, we're interested in a, a domestic mid-cap called Life Healthcare. They're one of the big hospital groups in South Africa. And the reason we're interested in it is we always look for companies that are decent businesses, decent quality businesses on a reasonable valuation, but where there's some kind of embedded optionality in the future that you're not paying for at the present moment. And Life Healthcare has two businesses. They have a South African hospital group, which is about a third of the SA market, and they have um, a UK business called AMG, mm. which is an imaging business. They do PET scans, CT scans, MRIs, and so on. Now, the, the current share price, in our opinion, you're only paying for the South African hospital group, okay? The SA hospitals are worth 16, 17 rand a share. The European business could be worth 5 to 10 rand a share on reasonable assumptions. So you're kind of getting that for free. Hmm. And it's a structure of having assets in the UK and in South Africa that no one likes. And I think management are probably going to relook at this and find some way of separating those assets from each other. And if they do that, you will then get visibility on the value of the UK business. Yeah. So, you know, if South Africa's worth 16, 17 Rand and the UK is worth five to 10, it's not easy, it's not hard to find uh, sort of 50% upside in the share from you. Yeah. What we need so, are kind of sensible management interventions. Yeah, and uh, yeah, the catalyst. Right, well, lots of very interesting things to chew over this evening. Thank you very much uh, to the both of you. Nice to chat to you. Uh, Nick Crail is from F&B Wealth and Investments. Shane Watkins is from All Weather Capital. And I'll be back with Stockwatch tomorrow night. Have a good evening.